Hey, this is Homer Hargrove. I'm the pastor of Grape Top Church, and this is our podcast. I want to thank you for connecting with our family today, and I hope this message inspires you and that it makes a difference in your life. Enjoy the message. But this reckless Christmas, we're going to talk about the reason for the season, which is Jesus. Look at your neighbor and say, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. That's the person that Christmas is supposed to be about, right? It's in the name. It's Christ Moss, right? It's because we're Hispanic down here in the South. We know what this means. People in the North, they don't know. They, they were taught, call it Xmas. We're like, no, no, you're missing it. It's Espanol, Christ Moss. It's more of Christ this season. But this whole Reckless series, we've been talking about people of the faith and the reckless decisions that they made for their faith. So many times we think faith is pretty enough to put on a coffee mug. That it's just a pretty little act of faith, the little hope that you have. But we've learned that, that faith is actually very reckless and sometimes even dumb to do. And today we're going to look specifically at Jesus Christ and the reckless things that he's done. This whole month we talked about other people, but Christmas service is going to look at the story of Jesus We're going to look at the decisions he's made, even the choosing of his disciples, the Great Commission, and his unconditional love to the world. Starting with this verse in uh, uh, John, before we go into it, let me ask you all a question. How did Jesus Christ live a reckless life? Think about it for a second. Was Jesus the, the, the pretty, permed up Jesus that we see in, in art and pictures? Or was he more of like a rugged kind of guy that you'd be a little intimidated by all the stuff he was doing? Is he a little reckless in the things that he was doing? Just to give a general verse in John chapter 1, verse 1 through 5, I feel like this verse is the most prophetic verse in the Gospels about Jesus. And it says in chapter 1, the book of John, starting in verse 1, In the beginning the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him, and nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Darkness can never extinguish the light. You never turn on the darkness, right? You just turn on the lights, and the darkness flees. You you always... Everything about light and dark is dependent on the light. Well, Jesus is the light of the world. And so it's not about how much darkness we have in our in our souls, our lives, how bad we think we are. It's just how much more or less we need Jesus. Right. But we always need more. Let's look at the the most uh, special part of Christmas, Jesus's birth. Now, those of you all who may not know, Jesus was not born on Christmas Day. I know. Bummer. Shattered your dreams. Um, there's some people that are a lot more adamant about that than others. Some people say you can't have Christmas at all because Jesus wasn't really born on that day. Some, a lot of people believe that he was born around springtime or summer. But Christmas originally was even to replace a pagan holiday. Uh, it was, uh, at the time, the, the church wanted to, uh, people were giving their lives to Christ so rapidly and they wanted to give uh, holidays to supplement 
people sacrifice, uh, putting uh, all their pagan stuff away. And so they would often, most of the holidays we uh, celebrate now were once pagan holidays, but the church uh, pretty much gave a Christian alternative, which is what we do nowadays, right? You ever hear a Christian Usher song, Usher song remix? <laughs> people do it today. Why can't we, why, they did it then. Why can't we do it today, right? Um, but Christmas, it, it's, it wasn't... Uh, Christmas, it wasn't the time that Jesus was born, but it represents that to us. And there's so much symbolism, th- uh, symbolism behind all the things of Christmas. Even the tree, um, you can, uh, someone could look at it as like, oh, that's obviously a pagan idol. Or someone else could look at it and look, uh, be reminded of the cross of Jesus, the tree that he was hung on. Uh, you could look at the lights and think, oh, that's meaningless. Or you could look at it as a representation of how in our homes we should be the light of Jesus. You could look at the gifts and think, oh, this is just idolatry. We're, we're missing the whole point. Or we could be reminded of the great gift that God gave to us and we share that gift with others. There's all this symbolism behind the different things. But we're not going to get into that today. We're going to look at the birth of Jesus. Okay, someone look at your neighbor and say the birth. Jesus Christ's birth. It, the first thing that's reckless, even just with his birth, just the, the, just the fact that the way that Jesus chose to be born was completely reckless. Number one, he chose this poor couple that had nowhere to stay on a night to be born. It says in, in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. This is an animal basket, okay? This is, this is a filthy basket that he was laid in. And it's symbolic of how as pure and holy as Jesus is that he came down in some of the most filthiest lives to make something that seemed like an ordinary, ugly thing into something that's holy and sacred, like all of us. We were horrible and ugly before Jesus, but he came into our lives and he made something ordinary special. Something ordinary in a farm now is now special place of life. But think about how there's no, it says that they looked, that they tried going to these hotels and that there's no room for them. And so that they, that's when they ended up having to be, stay outside. They found some barn or whatever, He's born in a manger. I can't imagine like uh, how Mary or Joseph felt. I wonder what the conversations were like before that. I mean, we look at Mary as being a pretty holy person. You know, she was, you know, at least ideally good enough to be the Virgin Mary. But I would imagine she would be a little ticked off. Like, you don't got no place for us to stay tonight, Joseph. Like, think about how irritating it must have been not having any spot. And and in in all of a sudden, she's starting to have contractions. I mean, anyone here been around a, a person giving birth, labor? It's, it's, a, it's a terrifying thing. Anyone that says it's beautiful, it's afterwards. That's, be- that's why it only describes the beautiful part here. It's, honestly, it's disgusting. It's disgusting. There's, there's blood everywhere. There's bowel movements. There's poop. I mean, this, it, it's crazy. And so this... This is a, a disgusting situation, and then the main, and then all of it just happens in the manger. It's not like Jesus came out in this white cloth, and it's just like so pretty, and they're like, "Oh, look, it's just a beautiful little manger." No, it was a disgusting display, and and here Jesus is born in 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 such a a, a difficult circumstance 
where there's lack. And yet when he's born, it's like when he comes into someone's life, you, you, even though they are still in lack, notice that the Bible doesn't even describe it. They are, they are missing out on things that everybody else has. You ever thought about that for yourself? That you, you, you do not have what other people have so easily? Well, when you have Jesus, it, it, it doesn't always change the circumstance, but it makes it to where you don't even realize. They didn't even realize how bad the situation was because of the life that he brings. Another thing that was really reckless about Jesus is who he chose to reveal his birth to. We know about the, the wise men and the shepherds, right? Well, starting off uh, with the shepherds, let me read you all a verse. Uh, the verse is about them in Luke chapter 2, verse 8 through 16. It says, That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them. Just side note, anyone that tells you that they see angels and stuff, every time someone sees an angel in the Bible, they're terrified, okay? So anyone that's like, it was just beautiful, we sat down and had coffee, that's, that's awesome. I don't know what kind of angel it was, but <laughs> every angel in the Bible uh, that is of God is terrifying to be in the presence of. <laughs> so just a little side note. Don't be afraid, he said, I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem the city of David, and you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger, showing that a manger was not a common thing to be born in. It was a ridiculous and reckless thing to be born in. Suddenly, the angel was joined by vast hosts of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those whom God is pleased. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see the thing. That has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They hurried in the village and found Mary and Joseph. And there was the baby lying in the manger. So this is like an amazing foretelling of what was about to happen. It, they were given the in on things. They were given the, the inner secret about the king of kings being born. Not everybody knows about it. All the Jews at the time were awaiting the Messiah, but they... they they would not think that a whole army of angels would start celebrating with you and say, you got to check this out. And so they get to see something spectacular. I've, I've never seen anything like that. I would imagine it to be terrifying and like crazy. And, but it's, God chose these shepherds to reveal something so important, so meaningful, so amazing. Who are the shepherds? Do you know what? In that time, this is the night shift, Okay. Anyone ever work a night shift at like Burger King or something? That's like where like, that's the, you know, I'm not trying to talk smack or anything, but that's like the lowest shift you can get. <laughs> that's the lowest low. This, this, the shepherds on the night shift was the most least, uh, least qualified job that anyone can do. It, it was the lowest position that you can have. So you could assume that these are also the poorest people around. And God chose them to reveal this amazing uh, moment of history, this one-time event, to a bunch of nobodies. People that were not meaningful to their society, to their families, to their community. And, and God chose the lowest of these to show the birth of the Son of God. I mean, 
That's a really reckless thing to do on God's behalf. Don't y'all think? I mean, when, you, if, when you've done anything significant in your life and you wanted to tell people, you usually want to tell the most important people, people that you're like, oh, I want them to be proud of me, meaningful people. Maybe even like you tell a, a teacher that you really aspire to or a, a person in your life that's been a mentor and influence. You want someone to be important that you tell. And here God is telling this most seemingly unimportant people. It shows that God has a completely different way of thinking. If you've ever had a job and you did something good, you tell the top boss. You don't go to the person under you like, hey, dude, I just want to let you know this amazing thing happened. And I want you to be the first person to tell about it. It's very rare. And God is, is showing that he, he doesn't look at people the way that we look at them. That he doesn't see position or status. He sees humility. And that he chose to reveal himself to the most humble people around. It's an important thing to note how, how, how God's heart is and how really reckless that is. Because, I mean, is anyone going to believe them when they go around telling other people? I mean, would you believe a night shift Burger King worker coming to you and like, you won't believe what I just saw? I personally would just assume that they were on drugs. Wouldn't you? Uh, no, I saw these angels, man. You got to believe me. Like, All right, man, lay off, lay off whatever you're doing. What's another ridiculous thing that God does? It says in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during this time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews. We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. I'm going to jump down to verses 9 through 11. It says, After they had heard the king, they went to the, on their way, and the star had been, that they had seen went when it rose and went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, because there's three gifts, people assume that there was three wise men. But it never says that there's three wise men. It just says that there's three different types of gifts. So it could have been just two guys with three different sets of gifts. It could have been five guys and they just had a bunch of frankincense, myrrh, and whatever. <laughs> but... We know that there's three gifts. Now, what do y'all think Magi means? We, we are always told that it was the wise men. Did you know that the, this is the root word, Magi, of magician? These were pagan astronomers. <laughs> they, the reason that they're going by the stars is because they worship the stars. You're talking about people that are completely far off from God. Pagans that, that do not know the God of Israel, that do not know the God of the Jews. They, their worship was complete paganism, and that's who God chose to show himself to. Is that not foretelling of him showing himself not just to the Jews, but to all the world at this point? Did he tell any of the priests or the religious leaders of the Jews, hey, guess what? The Messiah is about to be born. Come over here. He didn't show them any angels or great shows. He showed a bunch of pagans that worshiped the stars. And the way that they would understand, he showed himself to them. See, we, 
We think that God will only show himself in one way, as like a cloud coming down to earth. But we see that at wherever we are in life, God will reveal himself to the way that we could get it. Y'all dig what I'm saying? But all this is really just reckless of God. The Jews are the ones that are supposed to, to show all this stuff. They're supposed to be the one leading the parade. And God is showing the people that are so far away from him the coming of the Messiah. It doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. And to, to finish it off about his birth, it says in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, it says, When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who are two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So, as well as choosing to be born to a family at a time that had nowhere to stay, being born in a filthy manger, as well as choosing to reveal himself to a bunch of nobodies and a bunch of pagan-worshipping people, he also chooses to, to be born at such a time that there would be a tyrant of a king that is so crazy that he, because he is so, because these Magi mentioned that they came to worship the king of the Jews, they, he imagined it to be this, this earthly king that was going to try to overtake his position. And so to try to stop all that, he just does what any rational person would do. Well, just to make sure we get him, let's just kill everybody that's two years and younger. I mean, think about yourself on a rational level. Would you, like, think about killing a child? If you, if you would, then that's terrifying. But, like, that's already, like, crazy. Astounding. And to think of, of not just one, but, but thousands of children in, in the country. I mean, imagine if something like that happened just in the state of Texas. That would be terrifying. And, and this is in the whole land, all the country that this... This guy is in charge of, and, and he is so ludicrous that he's killing all these children. And Jesus is like, I'll make it out. <laughs> like when he, Matt, just, that doesn't make sense of why, why wouldn't he choose to be born during like King Xerxes when, uh, when that king, when he found, when he was such a understanding king, he let the Jews go back to Jerusalem, even though they would, were held captive by Babylon. Why not be born on a, a, an understanding king in charge? But he chooses to be born in the most difficult of circumstances to show that even when it seems like it's impossible, he's going to make a way. It's reckless, just reckless of Jesus. So that's just about his birth. Let's look at his life. All right. We, usually at Christmas time, we just stop at the birth, right? We just like the nice stories, the wise men, the manger. We'll set up the nativity. It's just a beautiful little scene that's pleasant and everyone's clean and robed up. Think of how smelly those, those shepherds must have been. No one puts that in a nativity scene. Imagine putting a little incense of, of hygiene and BO in the nativity scene just so you could get the full effect. So let's, let's move on from the, the pretty birth. We see that it was actually an ugly, reckless birth. Let's look at Jesus' reckless life. The first thing that Jesus does is the exact opposite of what any pastor, priest, any person would do that is trying to make a name for themselves. He burns bridges of any networking opportunities with all the religious leaders. If you read through the Gospels, you see that he is constantly fighting 
with the religious leaders of the time. It, just a, a, one of the most popular stories of how Jesus uh, does not just go along with the program to fit in. I, I, I love that Jesus never goes to share business cards in the Bible. He never is going to the religious leader like, hey, uh, you know, I'm actually starting something myself. You know, why don't you take my card? And if you guys ever want me to preach at the synagogue, the temple, I can always come and do that, you know. But instead, it says in John chapter 2, verse 13 through 16, it says, it was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. So Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Sounds almost kind of crazy, right? All this, it's just like all about money within the temple. That's kind of how it is in church nowadays, right? It's always just about money. What you, you can invest here and get your kingdom stewardship. It, it's all about money, 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 money. And what does Jesus do? He says, Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changers, coins over the floor and turned over the tables. Then going to, over to the people who sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. See, what, those doves that they were selling, all these things, those were the, to sell the sacrifices people needed to make their offerings and all that. And so they're just making it like this this big money market exchange at the temple, selling, selling things that people would see as religious practice. And Jesus flips everything over. I mean, that alone, I mean, if you guys saw me flip a table, I, I mean, I would probably not want to go to my church if I saw someone flip a table. Like, like that pastor has a problem with anger. <laughs> that guy's probably just a psychopath. And, he, he makes a whip and starts like literally whipping people out of the room. And think about who he's whipping. He's not whipping the, the sinners or people offering sacrifices. He's whipping the religious leaders. The people that thought they, they, that they were holier than now. The people that thought they were above everybody else. He, those are the people he's whipping out. And saying, you guys have tainted my father's house. But when you read through all, all the Gospels, the religious leaders always threw out the sinner and said, you're tainting the Father's house. Your impurities are ruining the Father's house. But here Jesus is saying, no, it's your wicked hearts, your, your impure motives that are ruining my Father's house. This is really reckless of Jesus because it is just damaging his opportunities to speak at the temple and synagogues. Think about all the influence that he could have and all the people that, that he could butter up to and kiss their butts to, to make them think, hey, do you want to come speak at my temple? Yeah, why don't you come? You, let's hear, hear what you got. She's ruining all that opportunity. Another thing he does is he chose the most unqualified people around. If you were starting a business or a group even, wouldn't you want some people that knew what they were doing? It says... In Mark chapter 1, verse 16 through 18, one day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water. They, were, they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, Come follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. They left their nets and at once followed him. You know, a lot of people say that, well, they were just so dedicated in their lives to, that they just knew Jesus right away was the Messiah. And so they were willing to submit and surrender everything on the spot. 
What if they just really didn't enjoy their lives at all as fishermen? <laughs> what if they were so bored with their lives that they didn't have anything better to do? It's like, well, I could always come back to this. <laughs> Might as well. It, he chose the most unqualified people to start his ministry here on earth. And it, it just, it, it's comforting for me because I'm like, well, man, I guess if Jesus would choose this guy, then I, maybe I'll be all right. Think about how Jesus is choosing the most unqualified people because he doesn't see you where you're at. He sees the potential within you. So many times we disqualify ourselves because we think that Jesus can't use us for anything because we're so stubborn, because we have so many things that we're addicted to or messed up in. But Jesus doesn't see you where you're at. He sees you where he knows you can be in him. He, does, he sees so much life in you that he doesn't, he, it, it literally does not see you where you're at. It's a really reckless thing to do, but it's because he has so much faith in you, knowing the power that's within you, if you were just give, have a little hope in him. I know for me, I mean, how many of you guys are just like, man, I just from 30 days ago, Jesus changed my life. Just a year ago, my life is completely different. God, I, I would never have imagined to be a person I am today without the power of God. But God sees so much life in you that he, he is able to just do a great work. Another thing that Jesus did that was so reckless in his life is that he preached to people who couldn't do very much for him. He has, he's doing all this work, doing all these miracles, preaching all these sermons to a, to a non-investment. The people that are poor, People that are sick, people that are worthless in their society by society standards. Let, let me just show you one example in John chapter 5, verse 5 through 9. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, Would you like to get well? I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man was healed, rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. This verse is showing a a similar story that's said multiple times of different people, of someone that was paralyzed, they were begging, they were sick, they were hurting, and they couldn't do anything for themselves. You've ever heard the story of a woman that had the issue of blood that touched the, the edge of Jesus' robe to be healed. All these people were people that were broke. They were super poor. They were sick in their society. Some of them were, had leprosy, which meant in their culture, people wouldn't even talk to them, let alone give them a job. These are, are homeless people. And that's who Jesus is spending his time giving all of his efforts to. A bunch of nobodies. Think about the, the, the 5,000 that Jesus fed with where he m- multiplied the bread and fish. All those people didn't even have enough money to bring their own food with them. It says that they all ran out of food so quickly. I mean, guys, just going on a trip, don't y'all budget? Don't you plan ahead? Even if you know that you could stop somewhere to to get something to eat, you still bring some granola bars, right? These people, they're they're used to traveling. They're used to not being home for days on end. 
but they didn't even have enough to take with them to last the complete amount of days that Jesus was talking. And what does Jesus do? He provides for them instead of asking an offering from them. Isn't that a powerful thing that we see? Jesus is is so ridiculous. (laughs) It's so reckless. This is not how we do church. It's just completely counterintuitive. So many pastors will will go out of their way to meet with somebody (laughs) one-on-one when it's about uh, them giving a generous offering. But no one is out there meeting with the homeless person. And the people that are, they're made fun of as, as fake ministers. I, I've, I've know ministers that there's, their whole goal is to minister to homeless people, but the, the pastors and, and up, upper leaders don't even consider them real ministers. Because you're just preaching to homeless people, that's crazy. And, and it's the hardest thing to do because you can't ask for an offering from them. Jesus is completely reckless in what he's doing and giving to people that can't give back to him. It's ridiculous. It doesn't make sense. This is a horrible business model. Let's let's talk about Jesus' resurrection, Jesus Christ's resurrection. This is the most important part. His, His Jesus Christ's glory, his death and resurrection. What's really reckless about it is that he goes through the agony of the cross for his enemies to be forgiven. What are sinners? The Bible describes sinners, us, as being enemies of God. That spiritually, we're literally at odds with God because of our sin. In Luke chapter 23, verse 32 through 38, it says, Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross, and the criminals were also crucified, one on his left and one on his right. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And the soldiers gambled for the clothes by throwing dice. The crowd watched, and the leaders, the religious leaders, scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself, if he's really the the God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fastened above him with these words, the king of the Jews. Think about how deep this mockery goes. The, the, The irony of them calling out, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Well, they didn't realize that his whole goal was to save others, not himself. His whole mission wasn't about him, it was about others. Which is another very rare thing that's reckless to do in church, to make all of your efforts not to just consume from church, but to contribute for others. doesn't make sense. It says how even the Jewish leaders and the soldiers scoffed at him, making fun of him, saying, oh, you're never going to finish what you started. Even the sour wine that they're offering him. If you've ever read it, it says that they raised up a sour wine a sponge of sour wine. There, there's some people believe that it was the sponges that were used in toiletries. They didn't have toilet, back, toilet paper back then, that they would use these sponges mixed with vinegar to clean themselves. And that, that, that's what they were offering up to his mouth. 
just used toilet paper, soaked in vinegar. That's what they were putting up to his face. When you think about how degrading that is, how disgusting that is, how, how much he's going through all this agony and being, I mean, if you've ever been dehydrated, just thirsty, it's bad enough. And they're offering him the, the, the sour, disgusting vinegar to his face saying, here, drink this if you're so thirsty. And with all this, he yells out, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I mean, how many of us would have a different prayer, right? God, kill them right now. God, cause them to be torn limb from limb. Get real biblical. Gouge their eyes out, God. Let them remember. No, he yells out, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You know, it sets a a precedent for all of us when we need to forgive somebody. People really don't know how bad they're hurting us sometimes. It's rare that people are intentionally trying to hurt you. Which is what Jesus is going through. But even then, they really don't know what they're doing. They're just acting out of emotion or out of their own ignorance. And Jesus yells out, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He goes through all of that agony for enemies. It doesn't make sense. Why would God do that? Why would He do that for us? Of course, the answer is because of His great love and wanting to close the gap between God and man. After the death, He has the resurrection. This is where everything matters. The resurrection, the most important part of his story. And what's so reckless about it, what's so ridiculous about it, is who he shows himself to first. It says in Mark chapter 16, verse 9, after Jesus rose from the dead early on Sunday morning, the first person who saw him was Mary Magdalene, the woman whom he had cast out seven demons. This, this woman is despised in society, in her culture, in her community. There's, there's other times in, this, in, in the Gospels where people are literally mad at her. They, people wanted to stone her to death. When, when she broke an alabaster jar across Jesus' feet, even the disciples were mad at her. Nobody likes this woman. There's not any instance where you see people who are like, oh, that Mary Magdalene, she's a good old gal. <laughs> Every time you see her in Scripture, people are mad at her, look down on her. And to top it off, in that culture, a woman's testimony wasn't valid. It was useless. You can even hold it up in court. And the very first person he shows himself to is a woman with his new message of the resurrection. No one, not even the disciples believe her. It says that when she went and told Peter and John that they didn't believe her, so they ran out to the tomb themselves. Everything, all his message, the the gospel is based off of this resurrection moment and he shares it first with a nobody. Just like he shared it with a bunch of nobodies at his birth, he shares his resurrection, his his new birth with a nobody. We, we value people so differently than God. I mean, even at this point, Mary Magdalene hasn't done nothing really significant. 
It's not like she went out and saved a bunch of people for Christ. She didn't go out doing any miracles that we read about. But just her simple heart and, and, and wanting God in her life, being so grateful of God's forgiveness, this love that she has, that that's truly what God desires. That Jesus appreciates just this simple heart to know him. I mean, is that really all it takes? How many times have you thought that you had to earn God's love? How many times have you felt so guilty? You're like, oh man, I messed up again, God. I did it wrong. I got it wrong. Now you don't love me anymore. See, Mary, she simply got it. It's not about how much she loves God, but about how much God loves her. And so Jesus shows himself first to this nobody that just simply loves him. It's reckless. And then this final point that I'm going to make. To me, this is the most encouraging thing within the Gospels. This is the, 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 the best part of the resurrection. After the resurrection, it says in Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 through 20, it says, Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some of them doubted. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. And be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is what's uh, noted as the Great Commission where he tells the disciples, go throughout all the earth, making disciples, baptizing them in my name. It's pretty much saying, go and spread the gospel. And he promises that he's with them always to the end of the age. That's comforting for me to know that even the times I don't feel like God is near, that God is near. But what's even more comforting is he gives the most important commission of all time to the disciples. So these 11 dudes, at what point does he give it to them? Right after they did a bang up job, right? <laughs> right after they succeeded at what they were supposed to do. This is right after each one of them ran away, left Jesus for dead. They literally deserted him. Right after Jesus was denied by Peter three times. This is literally after their worst moment of ministry, their biggest mistake reject, uh, of running away from the Son of God, the one moment that He needed them. And they were not willing to die for the gospel then. It says that they all ran away as cowards. Most, biggest failure in their career as disciples. And it's at this point that Jesus is like, all right, now you're ready. <laughs> now I trust you completely to take the gospel and spread it to all the earth. He doesn't go and spread the gospel himself. Jesus could just, he's alive. He could just walk throughout the, the land and say, hey guys, just want to let y'all know I'm alive. Nice try. Thought I was dead. Psych, gotcha. Then Ashton Kutcher comes out. You got punked. But Jesus, instead of just doing it himself, he trusts the disciples to do it for him. 
He says, no, I could do it, but I want you to do it. I, I, even though I, I get all the glory, I want you, to, I want you to, uh, to have some of the credit. I want you disciples to go out and do it yourselves. I believe in you. And at the moments that we feel like we're failures as Christians, moments that we feel like we haven't done enough, moments that we think God surely won't use me now. Jesus is saying, oh, no, you're just getting started. Now you're ready for the big game. You're really ready now. You can do this. Because remember, he doesn't see you where you're at. He sees you where he knows you can be. And I want everyone here to close your eyes and bow your heads. I believe that the Christmas story is the most reckless story there is. And maybe at some point, talking about the story behind Jesus' birth, his life, his resurrection, there is a moment where you realize that you needed that simple connection with him. Maybe you felt like the disciples did, feeling like a bunch of nobodies. You felt like the shepherds. You felt like Mary. You, you have been that, in that guilt. You've been in that shadow of regret, fear of not being enough. Maybe you are one of the, the Magi that have been just far away from God. But today you see that star and you want to go close to Jesus today. If you're here right now and you want to surrender your heart to him, put your trust in him as your Lord and Savior. With every eye closed and head bowed, I want you to raise your hand. Amen. So I want you to repeat this prayer after me. If you rose your hand or if you've already given your life to Christ, repeat this prayer as a reaffirmation of your faith. Say, Lord Jesus, I put my trust in you. I believe you're the son of God, born of a virgin, that you came down to earth to die on the cross for my sins and for the sins of the world. I put my trust in you. Be the Lord of my life and the Savior to my soul. Forgive me of my sins and my past and help me to walk this life in you. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you enjoyed the message today. If you did, there's a couple things that you could do to connect. First is to subscribe to our show so that the most recent episode will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And second is if this ministry has impacted you and you'd like to help us continue to reach others, you can click the link in the description or visit our website, gravetop.com, and you can give now. I'll see you next time on the Gravetop Church Podcast.